Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to the Hidden History Happy Hour, everybody. I'm back home in beautiful Gig Harbor, Washington. Cheers, Alex. Cheers. Good to see you. How's your summer treating you? We haven't really had one so far in the UK. It's mid-August. It's shaping up to be our rainiest August of all time. But also you're going into the two-month vacation season. Well, for some people, yeah. Um, I, I will, of course, not be vacationing for two months. But, uh, but yes, we are. Yeah, it's tough with the research schedule for the show to uh, That's get away. Really, what's really keeping me uh, keeping me up? You're right. Those I stacks am... of books in your dad's library. Yeah, they're just sitting no, there. Not going to read themselves. Um, <laughs> we uh, unimaginatively, I am having. I've gone back to G Vine. I'm having um, a refreshing gin and tonic to try and convince myself that it is summer. But I am conscious. I'm aware that we don't talk enough about booze on the podcast, and indeed that. Um, I've been rather dull in my choices of late. So next time, I promise I'm gonna um, I'm gonna have an exotic drink or more Fantastic. imaginative one. And we'll talk about it. And I have an exotic drink to talk about in the break involving, if you can imagine such a thing, gin. So this is my first two separate cocktail episode because I'm starting off with the nice Sauvignon Blanc, but I'm gonna switch to this and it will be apparent why but alex you always like to get us started with the story right out of the block so if you will sir release the bees i will release the bees um the romans were fond of fighting wars against mithridates and i checked the pronunciation mithridates of pontus spoiler alert as usual with the romans uh they got their man and indeed his empire in the end but mithridates and his allies certainly made rome sweat uh, for the win in the longest and the last of the Mithridatic Wars, uh, 73 to 63 BC, so it's a 10-year conflict we're talking about, uh, the Romans laid siege to Themyscira, um, which was a tough nut to crack. And after other measures had failed, the Romans, seemingly unable to go over the walls of the city, decided to go under it. Uh, the Romans were led by Lucullus, uh, as much beloved uh, by Rome for the unbelievable amount of booty with which he returned from campaigns, as for the victories he notched up for them. Uh, the Roman army dug a huge and deep network of tunnels to both undermine the great walls of the city and potentially allow them to penetrate the city from within without having to scale them. Uh, but uh, the plucky uh, Pontian Empire, realizing uh, what Lucullus was up to, dug tunnels of their own, uh, successfully uh, designed and implemented to intersect with the tunnels dug by the Romans. And they unleashed all manner of wild animals from the city into the tunnels, forcing them down towards Lucullus's men. And I don't just mean angry dogs or such either. These creatures were so varied as to include at one end of the size spectrum, swarms of bees, and at the other, enormous bears. And said animals, the annals record, uh, duly attacked the Romans. I suppose you kind of encourage them on their way with smoke and, and so forth. But 
Anyway, it's true at the in the end that the Miskirins lost, and they lost so hard that their city was ground into the dust. So thoroughly did they lose that debate about where that city was is not precisely agreed upon by the experts who study the period. But that is not the point. First, we mark the ingenuity of the defenders in stopping at nothing uh, in what they would throw at the Romans. You know, unleash the bees! <laughs> you know, fight them, Romans! But secondly, imagine the feeling of the attackers. You are on your umpteenth campaign against this Pontic mob. This one's been going 10 years. You've fought battles, you've dug the tunnels you've been ordered to dig. It's hot, you're tired, you're lugging armor on, you've got a hundred bee stings on you. And wait, what's this? Of course, it's an angry bear coming at me down the tunnel. Uh, so look, I, it's too well a, a known lesson to to stress, but given that they overcame this too, I note that in their prime, the Roman legions really did know what they were about. Yeah, great story. I forgot about this story. I flagged it a year ago for us to do, and then I sort of forgot about it. But I'm making up for that by uh, something I'm going to show everybody in a minute, which is my homage to the bees and also to the second story we're going to talk about today. But it definitely brings to mind one seemingly obvious military tactic, tactics question, Alex. Why didn't they just shove dirt in the tunnel on the other side? Well, because they were trying to actively... Oh, you mean the Romans? Why, um, no, why didn't the defenders, every time the Romans dug a tunnel, fill it with dirt? Well, you're going to run out of dirt, right? Because you're, you're in a you're relatively in a small city. Yeah. city. You're in a walled city, and there's only so much stuff you've got, and they're going to break down those barriers. And I'm, But also, I'm sure they did that too. Um, I've got a couple of interesting footnotes on this one. Um, Mithridates was really no slouch. Uh, and the example I gave in the book, by the way, this is a story that's only in the book. I never told this one on, on Twitter. Mm. Um, he, he, yeah, um, it's just an example that shows how far ahead of his time he was. Mithridates was alive to the prospect of his enemy seeking to use poisons upon him so as to render him no longer alive. And um, he was therefore in the habit of in regularly ingesting small amounts of various poisons so as to build up an immunity against them. Now, he, he lacked, of course, the knowledge of modern medicine, which tells us how useful vaccination and low dosage um, approaches to substances can be. And his acquaintances must have thought this a pretty weird hobby, but the logic is absolutely sound. Yeah, not only absolutely sound, but homaged in a film. I don't think we've talked about on the show, Alex, but I think you and I both love The Princess Bride. Uh, yeah, uh, you love it. I like it. But yeah, good uh, film. Okay. Well, in any event, the book's terrible, by the way, which I, I, I hate to say because it's one of my favorite screenwriters. book's terrible. But the, the you know, there's this famous moment with Wallace Shawn where he's sitting there with the cups of poison. You know, and he says, obviously never trade cups of poison with a Sicilian. I've been ingesting small amounts for years. So I don't know. Maybe, oh, maybe the I writers. See. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Great reference. Yeah. yeah the so maybe the writers. Good. That's really good. Okay. Um, and I, but as we're talking, as we're going high history, low culture, I will also point out that Themyscira is nothing to do with the city of the same name in the Wonder Woman stories in the films and the, and the books. Yeah, well, I, didn't, I didn't even know that was in the Wonder Woman book. So uh, hopefully that'll 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 be of value to to some of our listeners. The also question that this raises for me, talking like Yoda today. Another question this raises for me is, how do you corral bees? Yeah, so I imagine that they use bees for honey, like everyone else. 
and then you I, I, doubt, I doubt they got away without stings themselves right but you take the entire hive down to your your bit uh, of the tunnel mm-hmm. and then chuck it and blow smoke and encourage the bees to go in the other direction um but i mean resourceful right oh yeah love it and speaking of honey as we were alex ask uh-huh. me why i'm sitting here with a bowl of honey brian why are you sitting there with a bowl of honey it's a hell of a good question that's why you're such a great podcast host this is not just honey it's honey and lime juice and this is gin which as you know is not really my favorite but once again alex i'm sacrificing myself for the show because you're a man of the people yes i am honey has not just one tie-in to this show but two tie-ins to the show because first of all bees Second of all, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what in my country is now a huge phenomenon, as we're calling it here, Barbieheimer. Are you familiar with Barbieheimer? Oh, God. Barbie yeah, Heimer? I am. I am. <laughs> Painfully. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't, I have to confess, I did not do this. I would have done it, except my lovely fiance would not put up with it. But the, the thing in the US is to go to both Barbie and Oppenheimer in the same day. And back it's to like back. A, and it back to back. And it's like a six hour ordeal. And there's been t-shirts made. And these two movies are going to collectively be some of the most profitable movies of all time. So there's something it's amazing, to it. isn't it? Yeah, yeah no, no, no marketing engineer came up with it, yeah. it just was organic, right? So let me get back to the booze. I got my martini glass chill. I got ice all over my floor. What I am going to make here is the Oppenheimer or as huh. it's known, the Oppie. And in fact, Alex, when you go to see this movie, which I know painfully you haven't yet, it's a yeah. great movie. You should see it. There's Very a long, scene yeah. where yeah. your your countryman uh, playing Oppenheimer with a perfect American accent makes what was called at Los Alamos in the 40s, the Oppie, which is a very special martini in which he mixed honey and lime juice and he coated his chilled martini glass with it. And there's a scene Which is in being the movie. done. If you're listening to us, not watching, it's being yes. done in front of me now. Very sorry. You got to watch this one, guys, because uh, it's a good it's a good uh, bar tip. So you coat it with the honey and lime, and then you pour the chilled gin in the chilled glass, which is what I'm showing. Uh, so you uh, don't dunk viewers. a whole load of honey and lime in. It's just around the rim. And I can see it's it going almost, at the legs of the honey and lime going down into the martini now. It's like with the margarita where you put salt around it. Right. It's, it's liquid, so it goes inside. And this was Oppenheimer was famous for this, and it's portrayed in the film. And so honey and uh, lime, and then you got a straight gin martini. Straight. Well, theoretically, you could put vermouth in it, but why? Um, I think his vermouth. I, I just was reading about this. I think Oppenheimer's vermouth uh, to gin ratio was like seven to one. So I figured, why bother? So uh, it, it adds a little something. I actually find sometimes. People think they're making a great martini, and it's basically they've shown the glass, the the vermouth bottle, and then put it back in the cupboard. Uh, I actually like a bit of vermouth. I don't. I like mine not too dry. But, well, you uh, know, but my, you, you've seen me order vodka martinis this way, Alex. Where I'll say, if there's a bottle of vermouth on the shelf of the bar next door, close enough. Right. Close enough. Right. So how so is anyway, it? How, how is it? I'm gonna cheers to Robert Oppenheimer cheers. and the film. We can talk cheers. about it in a second. Definitely plant-based, which is not my thing. And yet, pretty nice for a summer day. The honey reminds me, you and I were in a bar once with somebody who um, was trying to order a particular well-known brand of Tennessee whiskey. And uh, they they had recently had the honey version and were saying, "Don't no honey, don't give me the honey yeah. one. 
we were in a foreign language bar and each time they thought this person was asking for the honey version and it, yeah. I, I don't know if they went out and found honey and put more honey in it and got angrier and angrier yeah. Yeah. i just found it so funny we were all half cut anyway yeah. but it was just <laughs> as glass after glass of what was yeah. not wanted was produced <laughs> extra honey honey yeah extra honey <laughs> yeah it was funny so so uh, i want to talk briefly about uh, oppenheimer and the invention yeah. of the atomic bomb because not only is it of course very historically important um, but also uh a, a company that you and i are very close to has publicly stated that the development of large language models and artificial intelligence prospectively could be as dangerous as the development of the atomic bomb yes so so it's it's very and also of course it's very hot topic here in the u.s right now so i i'm pleased to say uh, my lovely fiance um, gets me every month a history newsletter which all all always includes primary source material Oh. For our viewers, you can see that this, the word secret is crossed out on this document, and it's now, uh, our viewers can see, unclassified. It's been unclassified since 1965. This is the primary surviving written record of an eyewitness to the Trinity atomic bomb test at 5.30 a.m. on 16 July in 1945, the very first time the world saw an atomic bomb go off. So I'm just going to read a couple excerpts of it, and then well, maybe we'll talk a, a bit about the yeah, go ahead. This is by Colonel L.W. Alvarez. I was kneeling between the pilot and co-pilot in a B-29 number 384, by the way, same type of plane that dropped the bombs on Hiroshima right. and Nagasaki, and observed the explosion through the pilot's window on the left side of the plane. We were about 20 to 25 miles from the site, and the cloud cover between us was approximately 7 out of 10. About 30 seconds before the object was detonated, the clouds obscured our vision to the point that we did not see the initial stage of the fireball. I was looking through cross Polaroid glasses directly at the site. My first sensation was one of intense light covering my entire field of vision. This seemed to last for about one half second after which I noted an intense orange red glow through the clouds. Several seconds later, it appeared that a second spherical fireball appeared. And shortly after that, a third. This thing disappeared a few seconds later and what seemed to be another fireball appeared. And I'm now convinced that this was all the same fireball, which I saw on two separate occasions through a new hole in the airplane. When this third fireball disappeared, the light intensity dropped considerably. And with another 20 seconds or so, the cloud started to push up through the undercast. It first appeared as a parachute, which was being blown up by a large electric fan, which I think is a great description. After the hemispherical cap had emerged through the cloud layer, one could see a cloud of smoke about one-third the diameter of the par parachute covering the bottom of the hemisphere with the undercast. This had very much the appearance of a large mushroom. So in the first written account, probably done within hours of the detonation, this person had coined the phrase mushroom cloud, which lasted forever. I'm going to skip a bunch of this because the point, uh, one point of reading this is how dry and sort of like undramatic right. and scientific it is. It's it's not grappling with any of the greater, you know, moral questions about it. In about eight minutes, the top of the cloud was at approximately 40,000 feet. Well, how high were they flying at the time? As close as I could estimate from our altitude of 24,000. Good grief. And the 40,000 seemed to be the maximum altitude attained by the cloud. I did not feel the shock wave hit the plane. 
but the pilot felt the reaction on the rudder through the rudder pedals. Some of the other passengers in the plane noted a rather small shock at the time, but it was not apparent to me. I'm attaching two sketches of the cloud, which I made at the time. So our viewers can see, obviously this is not the original, it's a copy, but this is the actual drawing that the first recorded observer of an atomic bomb made. And it is the mushroom cloud. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the mushroom cloud. So I partly wanted to read that, you know, to get out of the doghouse with my fiance, but also uh, it's just, um, it's just kind of amazing to me how matter of fact and scientific the guy was. And right. of course he was a trained professional scientist, but still it was, I'm sure there's a lot he didn't write down that he was thinking at that moment. We, of course, went on to um, conduct various tests ourselves in the 1950s and indeed into the 1960s. Um, and it it was announced, as as we record now in June, in, uh, in August um, 2023, it was announced last week, or two weeks ago, that the veterans involved in that 70 years on will be mm -hmm. getting a commemorative medal. I mean, we've really, you know, got to move on, uh, haven't we? I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many of them are with us. And that cohort of, of veterans um, uh, of serving military personnel um, in the British Armed Forces have had, I think, a number of medical issues and problems which have, for which they've not received, I think, compensation. Um, but they'll be happy to know 70 years late, they're getting some medals. Yeah, that's a... A huge controversy that the film is has generated here in the U.S. because there actually is a congressionally authorized, pretty fatly monetized fund for victims of nuclear testing, Bikini Atoll, et cetera. Right. For whatever loophole, but not for crazy, the weird reason, yep. that. But also, they're not giving it to the families of the residents of New Mexico who just happened to be living there and had no part in it and they got cancer and all manner of other things so that's really? going to be remedied i think pretty soon because that's just scandalous yeah yeah i agree i was going to say so but you recommend the movie yes so it's very talky uh it's at least three hours long although it doesn't seem like three hours when you're in it but the cast is phenomenal uh matt damon um Killian Hines, who's uh, one of your, well, I guess he's right. Irish, so I don't know if you consider him a countryman or not, but he's he's an amazing actor, Peaky Blinders, etc. I don't know if he's from the uh, Northern Ireland or from the Republic, so that's but he he we just, gloss over. He 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 falls into the guy. I mean, I I I wanted to mention that I actually am so interested in this issue because I had a little brush with it um, in 1986 when the Chernobyl nuclear explosions happened. Um, I was the Bulgarian political analyst for the CIA, which, uh, on the one hand, you know, at 23 and a half, not a bad gig, but on the other hand, not exactly the hotbed of, uh, interest by the administration in, 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 in the mid eighties. Right. Except that it turns out that the closest functional nuclear reactor to the reactors that exploded in Chernobyl were built by the Soviets in Bulgaria. So all of a sudden, Bulgaria was of huge interest. And so at 23 years old, I was able to go and brief the president, President Reagan, the rest of the war cabinet or the national security cabinet and Edward Teller, who by this point in 1986 was on President Reagan's nuclear weapons advisory committee. You but of course, Teller. 
I met Teller, but of course he was at Los Alamos and he was yeah, a yeah. huge participant in the Manhattan Project. And, um, you know, of course he was quite on in years by the time I met him, but he was sharp and he was acerbic and he was every bit as bombastic and opinionated as they portray him in the film. That's great. Well, I have an, one more British point to make, which is that yeah. I, as, as far as I, and there was a debate in parliament, I think about whether these men would get compensation. Maybe got some in the end, but I think, but um, at least some of the merchant seamen involved who were on observing ships were not told what they were there for. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's very close, as close as you can get really to guinea pig status um, for these guys. Uh, and they were miles away from the Christmas Island tests that we um, British uh, were conducting in towards the end of the 50s. And um, I, this is a particular piece of, in the parliamentary debate that's really stuck with me where um, there was this enormous black rain that fell and uh, after they'd seen the mushroom cloud and the, um, the waters rocked up and a whole load of dead fish got washed aboard, not knowing the hazards, the men ate them. Oh. One of the things yeah. that is, and again, I do recommend this movie if you like history and you like people talking in offices, um, which we do because we like the West Wing. Uh, right. But one of the things that you normally would see at the end of a film like this is a lot of credit cards that say, you know, such and such went on to do this and that and so and so died and blah, blah, blah. And you don't get that in Oppenheimer. And what you especially don't get is any discussion of the physical health going forward of all the people in the Manhattan Project that observe this. I mean, these guys, right. at least as portrayed in the movie, like Matt Damon plays uh, Leslie Groves, who was the military leader of the project. And these guys are just sitting there like 10 miles away with sunglasses on, basically. Oh, love the, the ship, the, the, the seamen I'm, I was mentioning to you were told to cover their eyes at the moment of the explosion. And the account of one of the guys says, well, I did, but I could see with absolute clarity the bones in my, in my hand. Oh, wow. He could see each bone in his hand as he had it in front of his face. Literally an x-ray. So I don't know what happened to all the service people, but I know that the people, the civilians living in New Mexico at the time, still to this day, their families have not been compensated. So hopefully the movie will raise some awareness and um, hopefully also we're not, you know, with AI, we're not entering another uh, apocalyptic age where we can destroy ourselves with a lot, not a lot of effort. Well, we're going to wrap up, but I just give away one thing on that point. We may be because the fascinating things happened in the UK, where um, a Chat GPT variant was asked by scientists. Um, they were trying to demonstrate; they were doing a paper on the risks of Chat GPT and the and the other systems in their field, and they produce vaccines for things. And say so they just flipped the one for zero and said, "Yeah," said to the the um, chatbot said to the ai um try and produce the most dangerous things you can think of and they just left it to run overnight and the next day it had spat out everything from anthrax to um obscure conditions that people have, have yet to create i mean like hundreds and hundreds of communicable diseases and viruses and um you know, and it wouldn't be hard you know, if you work your way down the list and you're a halfway decent scientist, e even with limited facility, you could make one of them because you've yeah. got literally hundreds of options to go at. Yeah. And uh, and basically instructions on how to do it. So and you could uh, and you could probably ask it to say, take this list and tell me the ones I can make with stuff I can find at the local drugstore. It, 
Exactly right. Well, let us um, think how much, how much luckier those people were who lived in the days when all you needed to worry about was bees and bears coming at you down a tunnel. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, my friend. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Cheers. Good to see you. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.